0: Okay, uh, open your bulletin. The passages that we're going to be using are there. Uh, there's various texts for your perusal that we're going to read from and make reference to. Um, Mark Driscoll, some of you know, uh, he's an interesting interesting person, interesting pastor. He's the founder of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, uh, also of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. Um, for gospel-driven churches. Well, he was on a mission trip to East India and was visiting a rural church there. And he said he was in the middle of nowhere walking down a dirt road and uh, seeing altars and shrines as far as the eye can see and everywhere he turned his head. Uh, Altars covered with chicken blood and altars scattered with chicken feathers all over the place, that there were uh, idols and shrines all over this area. They worshipped everything and anything. Uh, and regularly sacrificed to their gods uh, driscoll asked uh, the village pastor's wife who was taking him around and showing him the area he said so do you think you'll ever come to the united states and see our country uh, and she said oh yes i did once and uh, i can never visit again and he said why and this is what she said i cannot stomach the idolatry Driscoll goes on to say, he says, she's telling me this while we're standing there right next to an altar where a chicken got whacked, apparently to the chicken god. What's the point? The point is, you and I are always the last, the last people to see our idolatry. In fact, when we think of idolatry today, most of us picture altars and shrines and chicken blood and chicken feathers and some sort of mood-inducing aroma incense that's what it's called right uh carved images we usually picture a time period in the past a more primitive time a more a more distant time uh that that lacks the progress and the technology and the advances that we have today right and if it is in the present we think of third world places like east india most of us however when we think of idolatry and picture of it we don't think of and we don't picture what our own hearts It's usually the last place we go. Now, this village pastor's wife might have been blind to her country's idols, but I think she's on to something, though, with respect to America's idols. Uh, There's a guy named Richard Keys, and he wrote an article in a book called No God But God, Breaking With the Idols of the Age. It's edited by Os Guinness. Uh, Some of you are saying, "Will you note some of these things, because I really like to lead some of the books that you're quoting up here. So that, that was for you. Uh, Keyes wrote, a careful reading of the Old and New Testaments show that idolatry is nothing like the crude, simplistic picture that springs to mind of an idol sculpture in some distant country. Okay. As the main category to describe unbelief, the idea is highly sophisticated, drawing together the complexities of human motivation and individual psychology and social uh, environment. And also the unseen world, all packed in, as he's saying in this idea of idolatry. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Apostle Paul associated that dynamics of human greed, lust, craving, and coveting with idolatry. The Bible, he says, doesn't just allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. The Bible puts idolatry front, central, center stage, end quote. Now, he's considered to be probably one of the greatest expositors of the Bible in all of human history, and also one of its greatest theologians. you all know who he is? Of course you do. He's a guy named John Calvin, right? And he said that the driving characteristic of the human heart, the driving energy in the human heart in this way, the human heart is an idol factory. It's always producing, always manufacturing. Idols. Uh, Nietzsche. Right? German philosopher, famous for saying God is dead, but he was also famous for asserting that power is the bottom line motivator of the human heart and the explanation for all human behavior. Remember the, the Nazis took that philosophy and that's how they came up with a Nazi Superman, right? Well, this is what he said. There are more idols in the world than there are realities. Uh, This guy that we're going to talk about now, he's he's considered a pioneer in biblical counseling and pastoral care and soul care. And what he's done is he's built upon the energies of the Puritan and Reformed and their works and their treasure trove. And he's put together and putting that together, uh, a biblical care of the soul that the gospel reaches into. And he likens idolatry to an infestation of roaches. He says the human heart is infested with them. So welcome to the garden of the gods. Welcome to where our greatest personal, relational, social problems and pains are not unmet needs and they're not bad behavior and are not the wrong guy in the White House and they're not uh, oppressive people or oppressive systems or oppressive even circumstances. But idolatry in the human heart. Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
1: You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The word of the Lord.
0: Be God. Please be seated. So God, we ask that uh, as we are uh, in your presence, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and teach us uh, about you, about ourselves, and about Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Now, some of you do not buy the idolatry angle of the human heart. That's understandable. Uh, You think the main cause of personal, relational, and societal ills and problems is bad behavior, bad life choices. Uh, The religious version is breaking God's laws. Uh, The bottom line for you is you're thinking, look, everyone's just playing too sensual, (laughs) too self-indulgent, too lacking in personal responsibility, Uh, too undisciplined or too morally bankrupt, Uh, and I get that. There's others of us that think the main cause is unmet needs. The therapeutic version is broken provisions. In other words, there are natural provisions to be expected that human beings are to be provided for, and and they're failing us. It could be parents, it could be friendships, it could be institutions like the church or education. Uh, They're not coming through for us. Or worse, these areas could be actually hurting us or abusing us. Uh, The problem here is this. I acknowledge that those two, there are some real benefits to what those two are saying. The problem is that these views don't go deep enough. Both views uh, are outside-in problems, looking for outside-in solutions. Uh, Let's take behavior, behavior, ethics, morality. This worldview uh, zeros in on effects not the causes of those effects. It zeroes in on the fruit, the behavior, not the root of where that behavior comes from. It just doesn't go deep enough. And then if you want to talk about unmet needs, it does the same thing. I mean, when it starts looking at, uh, starts looking at problem emotions and feelings, there's still an effect or a fruit. What's causing that? Also, it doesn't It zeroes in and and challenges these proposed unmet needs, but doesn't challenge them to see if they're legitimate or not. So it still doesn't go deep enough. Now, Mark 7, Jesus tells us that we have an inside-out problem. We have a heart problem. It's not what's coming at us. It's what's coming out of us that's the issue, according to Jesus. And then when Paul picks up this theme, he says, listen... Uh, he tells us that our deepest problem and our deepest pain is sin, but then he goes on to tell us what sin really is. Sometimes we we speak of sin in generalities, which is fine, but what Paul does is he opens up sin, and he allows us to look inside and see its DNA and see its mechanics and see its internal structure so that we really understand what we're up against. We really understand the dynamics of sin. And he summarizes sin as idolatry. It's in your bulletin. Look at Mark 1. I mean, uh, John, John, Paul 1. uh, He summarizes it not as a behavior problem, not as an unmet need problem, but as an idol problem. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, exchange the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creator rather than the creature who is forever blessed. Amen. So according to the Bible, from Old Testament and New Testament, the DNA of sin is idolatry. So what is idolatry? All right, this past Wednesday, I'm going through my morning routine, and I'm doing what I usually do. While I'm going through my normal morning routine, getting ready for the day. I have the TV on to ESPN Sports Center. And while uh, this... Sports Center's on an interview, comes on with a guy named John Harbaugh. Y'all know who he is. He's the coach of the Baltimore Ravens. They just won the Super Bowl, the greatest prize in all professional sports, on the biggest stage of all professional sports. So this is two days, maybe three days after this incredible victory, and he's being interviewed, and the interviewer, a sports writer, says, hey, listen, coach, what's it like to be a world champion, to attain the highest level and the biggest sport in the world? How are you enjoying your success? Now I confess I don't know if he answered the enjoying success part because I was brushing my teeth and I have an electric toothbrush and it's really loud. So I didn't hear that part. But this next part I did. It caught my attention. He said, well, we have areas to improve on with this team. Okay. We're the 2012 world champions. But it's now 2013 and we've got some work to do. And then he goes on, and I don't remember the name, but he says, that's why so-and-so is in the room next door working out right now. And then he goes on and he says, uh, winning the Super Bowl is like winning a prize fight. We won this one, but there's always another one. Uh, the joy of success and achievement uh, doesn't last very long. Because there's always... The next performance. When the French political thinker Tocqueville recorded what is now pretty famous, his observations of America in the 1830s, uh, he said this haunting line. He said, America has a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants. He says, This strange melancholy haunts Americans, even in their abundance. And then he goes on and he says how Americans believe that prosperity, success, and achievement will give them the, the ultimate conquest of happiness, the deepest longing in their heart, he says. They believe that. Then with unbelievably penetrating insight, he says this, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Idolatry is trying to make the incomplete joys of this world Satisfy you. Fill you up. Make you alive. The theological word is redeem you. But there's only one living God. One living Lord. One living Savior. There's only one source of ultimate cosmic happiness. There's only one source of ultimate cosmic security, and joy, and peace, and identity, and significance, and longing, and trust, and hope. There's only one source of of deliverance from disaster and doom. Uh, Idolatry is looking to someone, including ourselves, or to something like sex, or a career, or being a good mom, or some noble ideological cause, looking to something or someone to provide for us what only God can provide for us. That's idolatry. Idolatry is trusting in a God replacement. Idolatry is hoping in a substitute savior. Idolatry is loving, serving, and obeying a false God. Now, when we do this, we might as well whack a chicken, burn incense, and carve an image with our handy Swiss Army knife because our hearts already have. So why is idolatry so personally, relationally, and societally devastating? Why is this? I mean, why? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about why? Why is it so destructive to us and so destructive to our relationships and those around us? Here's the answer. The Old Testament gives it. It's in your bulletin. It's in those first two commandments. The Old Testament short answer is there's only one living God. So nothing else can carry the burden, the weight, the majesty of Godhood. In other words, there's nothing else in all of creation that can carry the weight of God for you, that can carry the burden of salvation for you. There's nothing. And so the first commandment says this have no other gods. And then the second one tells us what it means have no other idols. A successful career or family cannot give us an identity. It cannot carry the weight and the burden of our value and worth and meaning in life. There's only one living God. Only he can. Religious performance, which means avoiding sin and being good, cannot make us righteous. It cannot justify us. It cannot cover our sin And our guilt. It cannot give us the peace and the joy that we desperately need. There's only one living God. Only He can. A sensual living, indulging, um, cannot give us the source pleasure, the source beauty that we were made for. Only the living God can. So only God can deliver the goods. Only God can save us. Only God can bear the burden of Godhood for us. Uh, Tim Keller in his recent book, Counterfeit Gods, which I highly recommend, uh, that book is on the top. my personal top ten list. And I've read a lot of books. It's a fantastic book. Well, he tells of a Bear Stearns executive who learned that he was not hired by J.P. Morgan Chase when they bought his collapse firm, okay? This is what he said. This executive took a drug overdose, went up to his 29th floor of his former office suite, and jumped. His friend, his distraught friend said, look, this bare stern thing broke his spirit. Keller noted, he had sacrificed everything to the God of success, but it wasn't enough. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease, They still are. Idolatry breaks your spirit. It ruins our relationships. Uh, It devastates and multiplies societal ills. So how do you break free from the idols in our heart? How do we do this? How does this come about? Uh, What's the first plan? Well, it's our theme that we've had now for three consecutive weeks. It's the first application We have to be real sinners. We can't play sinners anymore. We can't be imaginary sinners. You have to be a a real sinner in order to even attempt to be able to break free from these idols in the heart that arise like a factory, right? And what this means is that we must regularly admit that we're an idolater. And we need to do this to God and to other people. And so this means we need to admit that we're doing an evil, that our evil of idolatry is trying to erase God from our life. Sin's not, just, sin's not evil in its strict behavioral sense. It's not wicked in its strict, ugly behavioral sense. Sin is evil and sin is wicked because sin is ultimately trying to erase God by putting something else in his place. And we need to admit that this is what we do that we erase him by looking to something or someone other than him to provide what only he can provide. That is why the Bible calls it evil. It's the most ruinous thing that could happen to us, okay? Now, being a real sinner also means finding and identifying your own personal idols, those those idols in our life that have this undue influence on us and undue control on us. And so how do you find that? How do you identify it? Well, first ask God to show you. Say, oh God, would you show me these idols that I have? Because remember, who's the last person to see them? You are. I am. So God must see us. And the sign that he's actually doing a real surgical work in your life is you begin to identify them. You begin to see them. And I need to tell you on the authority of the scripture itself, you will not grow in the Christian life unless this is a regular dynamic in your life. This is what renewal means. This is what real repentance means. It's coming not just to the idea of sin, but looking again at the dynamics of sin as idolatry and see where do I, where do I find my deepest hopes and trusts, right? What's bearing the burden of Godhood for me? So a good thing to do is to talk to somebody that you really trust and ask them what they see. If you're married, it's a no-brainer. Your spouse knows what they are. They just haven't the courage to tell you yet. But now when you ask them, they have all the freedom in the world to enlighten you to the highest degree. So ask them. Let them enlighten you. Right? And hopefully they'll be kind. They might not be. Still doesn't matter. You need to hear it. Right? Other thing we need to do is listen to your dreams and listen to your fears. Your dreams are what you must have to be okay. You know, when you sit down and you're, I don't know, if you ever have a moment when you're able to sit down and not have the TV on and not be in a conversation and not have a book open, but you know, you're just sitting there. Maybe it's when you're driving in your car and you're not listening to the radio because your radio doesn't work. I have no idea. But in those moments, what do you dream about? Now it's okay to have dreams and desires and expectations. You better. I mean John Knox said, "Listen, give me Scotland or I die." That is a dream worth living for, right? Okay, but what what do you dream about that will give you life and the conquest of hope of happiness? And here's the here's probably the the easier one to follow. What's your worst nightmare? It's not what you must have, but what can you not have? I cannot have blank. If I have blank, I'm undone. That is the worst nightmare. If you really want to try to figure out what your nightmare is, you can figure out what you're always trying to control, what you worry about, what you're anxious about. That's a good way to try to figure it out. All right, and then I want you to you got to follow the smoke of your bad emotions and your bad behavior to the real fire. If you're in a room, we've talked about this before, and there's smoke in the room, and it's getting a little uncomfortable, and then the first thing we do is we open up the window, and then we turn on the fan, and then we're, and eventually, though, the smoke gets so bad and so suffocating, your eyes are so irritated, and it's hard to breathe that you go, okay, where's the fire? Where is it? Well, that's what we need to do with our, our strong, paralyzing, uncontrollable emotions and bad behavior. We need to go to the fire source and find out what's causing them, okay? So, uh, for example, why are you angry? You know, here's one kind of way to repent. You can repent by saying, you know, honey, I'm sorry I got angry. I'm sorry I was so irritated with what you said. That's one way, and you could tell her, I'm sorry for being angry. You can tell God, I'm sorry for being angry. That's one level of repentance. That's the behavioral level. That's still pretty good. It's better than nothing. But an intelligent repentance the kind of repentance that god's after is, why did you get so angry Shh. now we're down at our idol follow it right okay you lie you lust you slander why now we're down at our idol okay all right you know what the bible says Or how a Bible describes a real sinner. You know what the Bible calls a real sinner? A godly person. The Bible says the most godly people in the world, the most holy people on the planet, are those who have a lifestyle of confession and repentance. The moment we stop. The moment we don't grow. Okay? All right. Ultimately, though... There's only one way to break free from your idols. There's only one way. Let's say you struggle with alcohol. Um, If you are to go up to your alcohol and say, I remove alcohol from my life, something else is just going to take its place. The only way to ultimately change is you can't remove an idol. You have to displace it with something else. Someone better. Not a false God, but the living God, the true God. Okay? So what does that mean? This is where I want you to look at your passages on the bulletin. There's a Jeremiah passage and a James passage. They're going to help us here. Notice the Jeremiah passage. Notice how it describes our relationship to idols. How does it describe it? Describes it like a lovesick person, right? They're so in love, they're just led along by the nose. And some of you know what that's like, right? You know, those of you who are married, I hope you had a season where you felt that way. You know, if not, you'll see me in about one year into your marriage. But hopefully, you know, if we look at it, a relationship with idols, according to Jeremiah, is a lovesick kind of way. But then notice the the relationship in James. James describes it as a spiritual adultery. Do you see the theme here? An idol is promising to make you feel loved, valued, and it can't love you. It can't do it. The way out is there is one who loves you truly, unrelentingly, penetratingly, deeply personal, eternal and steadfast. There is one. And he's your your true spouse. The true lover of your soul. And in fact, what's fascinating about this one, instead of demanding a sacrifice when we cannot pay for failing him, he provides the sacrifice. I mean, what does an idol do when you when you fail it, when you blow it? What does it do to you? Oh, it, it it crushes you. It curses you. It calls you a failure. It demands a pound of blood. What does God do? What's His love like? He loves you so much that He brings the sacrifice to pay for our spiritual unfaithfulness and our spiritual adultery the sacrifice of himself on the cross. But he also does something else. Instead of demanding a perfection that we can never attain for acceptance and approval, I mean, what does an idol do? An idol's always demanding. Remember there's always the next performance. I was the champion for 2012. It's now 2013. Next And what happens again when you blow it? It demands a pound of flesh. This demand for perfection is continual. But notice what God does in his love. He gives you his own perfection, his own righteousness. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 5 describes it this way. He gives you splendor. And splendor is described that there's no spot. There's no wrinkle. There's no blemish. There's no imperfection. There's splendor and radiance and holiness and righteousness he meets and gives you the standard of perfection for approval and for acceptance so here it is the bottom line is this we have to we have to replace the false god with the true one and that's the only way we break free amen